This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The fight to clear an officer's sentence to 25 years behind bars, Bodega Justice, the praying coach who fought for religious liberty and won, and my final thoughts on Hunter Biden's dirty mouth. That's all next because my show starts right now. We are living in strange, lawless, and backward times where up is down and good and decent people are punished while thugs and felons are mollycoddled by the system. There is perhaps no better or no more messed up story to detail that insanity than this story. Warning, the footage you're about to see could be considered graphic by some people. All right, that's New York City bodega worker Jose Alba, who is now charged in the fatal stabbing of ex-con Austin Simon. Now, the footage not only clearly shows Simon intimidating and then physically assaulting the bodega worker, but an extended version of the security footage also shows the clerk attempting to de-escalate the situation when Simon first stormed behind the counter. It's clear to anyone with eyes and a single brain cell that Jose Alba was defending himself when he stabbed Simon. This all occurred over a bag of potato chips, by the way. Oh, and Simon was still on parole for assaulting an officer when this incident occurred, mind you, and had a lengthy rap sheet that includes robbery and assault. But now it's Jose Alba, a man with no prior incidents or record, an immigrant from the Dominican Republic and a father of three who will pay the price. This incident was not Jose Alba's fault. It was Austin Simons. But there's also blood in the hands of New York City Mayor Eric Adams, his activist DA Alvin Bragg, and every other felon-coddling politician who allow thugs like Austin Simon to run rampant in the streets, emboldened and excused. When you foster a culture of lawlessness, this is what happens. In fact, according to a recent estimate by the Bodega Association and the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, crime is up 70 to 80% in bodegas and supermarkets citywide, just like all the other crimes committed by all the other thugs and degenerates who run buckwild in the streets. And now, if the New York City District Attorney gets his way, this hardworking bodega worker will rot in prison over it. Turns out these liberals do want to lock people up, just not the right ones going after victims instead of criminals. Enough is enough. But joining me now with his take is New York State Attorney General candidate Michael Henry. All right, Michael, first of all, congratulations because you're up for election in November. I know that that's been a battle you've been fighting, and we're going to talk about that race and what you can do to change New York in a minute. But first, I want to go back to this case. Does this bodega worker deserve to be charged for what happened here? No, I, I do not believe he does. And I think that this has been a pattern of what you're seeing uh, in New York recently. You're seeing these videos get uploaded of people that are going behind counters in stores, going behind counters in fast food restaurants. And when you look at this individual, now, he probably didn't know that this gentleman was an eight-time, had a, a rest record eight, eight, uh, of eight records, um, that also he was out on parole for assaulting a police officer. But what we see here is an immigrant who came here 30 years ago, became a citizen 14 years ago, is working to feed his family in a bodega. This, this EBT gets denied by this gentleman's girlfriend for a $10 bag of chips. She goes, brings her boyfriend back. He has this gentleman quartered. He can't retreat. There's nowhere he could go. And he defends himself. And not only that, 
the girlfriend apparently stabbed this gentleman also, as Alba also. So what you have is a situation where somebody is not only threatening someone, he's assaulting him. He could be trying to rob him. We don't know what was being said on the video. And this gentleman clearly is looking to defend himself. The most troubling aspect of this is Alvin Bragg, in his memo, when he first became the DA, said that if you robbed someone at gunpoint and you didn't make physical contact with them, that should be downgraded to a misdemeanor. Now he pushed his prosecutors pushed for five hundred thousand dollar bail for this gentleman who was minding his business, working and just looking to defend himself. This is completely unacceptable. It sets a horrible precedent to criminals that you could do what you want. Obviously, nobody wanted to see someone die. But the other problem you have here too, we're not that nobody's discussing, is you're going to start having vigilantism, and we can't have that. What we need is a restoration as to what's right and wrong and criminals to fear consequence. So this kind of behavior stops and gentlemen like Alba don't have to be terrified and terrorized while they're just trying to feed their families. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up because we don't want to see a rise in this vigilante justice. But when you have Mm -hmm. a city, when you have a state of lawlessness, New York, California, a lot of other major cities across the U.S., that is what is going to happen because people are having to defend themselves. Of course, this man had a knife and they want to neuter law-abiding gun owner so that this man had to use a knife. But in these situations, when they're left defenseless, what else are you going to do? This man should have lost his life. Who knows if that man would have had a gun or would have had a knife, what he would have done. And that man was reacting. And we see this situation over and over and over again. But I'm really trying to figure out, Michael, because this still just stupefies me. What is the purpose of allowing this culture of lawlessness? Who is benefiting from it? The politicians don't look good when we have this culture of lawlessness in our streets, but they continue to stand behind those policies, not just in New York City, but also in California, in LA, and in San Francisco. What is the rationale behind it? I don't know the rationale because it's an irrational policy and it's an irrational mindset. And I think when you look at what's going on, I mean, every day you open a newspaper in New York City, what do you see? A woman getting smashed with feces, a woman getting sexually assaulted on a train, people being stabbed, Last week, you had a pregnant woman beaten with a wrench on the Grand Concourse in the Bronx. People do not want to live like this. And the politicians are absolutely tone deaf to this. And I don't understand why this is still going on in New York, because Eric Adams was elected as the pro-law enforcement, pro-cop candidate, and he was supposed to have a mandate. And instead, everybody's falling in line. Kathy Hochul becomes the governor. First thing she does is pick to defund the police supporter and now federally indicted Brian Benjamin to be her lieutenant governor. And the first piece of legislation she pushed pushed was a parole bill that let more violent recidivist criminals back out onto the streets. We have an attorney general who I'm facing, who's one of the biggest spewers of anti-police rhetoric, and who recently said she doesn't support any changes to these bail reform laws because she needs more credible data. And the problem is credible data is victims. And that's a despicable mindset for the chief law enforcement officer of a state to have, because one victim is one victim too many. And the people are changing, the people are turning, and this crosses racial lines, ethnic lines, religious lines, gender lines. People do not want to live like this. And these politicians are so tone deaf, probably because they have private security, and pretty soon they're going to realize that they are on the wrong side of these policies. I hope you're right. I also want to ask you, though, because there's a lot Mm -hmm. of discussion about, as you mentioned, the races and the money being pumped into these races. Of course, Mm -hmm. George Soros is the name that everybody knows, going around winning these DA races across the country, pumping a lot of money in 
in there and then getting these activist DAs, not just in major cities, but in smaller cities as well. So how does a Republican candidate or I don't know, even just a candidate that wants to see law and order restored? How does a candidate like that go up against that kind of money, that kind of power, that kind of influence, not just in New York City, but around the country? I think there's there's two things. One, you have to be media savvy. Um, two, you have to go directly to the voters. And then three, you have to work really hard to fundraise. I think a disadvantage Republicans have is we have to go ask someone to go into their pocket to support us. You know, Democrats have a lot of labor union support, a lot of support from like not for profit type groups and a lot of outside money. And they're very organized. You know, George Soros, we might not agree with him, but this man knew you want to control government, local district attorneys, board of educations. Uh, local secretary of states. We've seen that they targeted specific races. And what we need to do is one, we need to be able to go to people, work hard to fundraise, and then also try to work the grassroots as best as we can and talk to people out there and let them know my race is not a New York race. My race is a national race. Letitia James has been suing Republican governed states, conservative organizations. One example is during the 2020 elections, she sued the NRA to freeze their assets. That case actually judicial dissolution just got dismissed a couple months ago by a Manhattan judge. So she's played an active role, whether it's social issues, voting rights, gun rights throughout the country and targeting Republicans with the goal of crippling Republicans on a national level. So my race, I also have told people is a national race. So it just doesn't affect New Yorkers. It affects people around the country. And that's another thing we're trying to do is earn support to try and make sure that we get rid of someone who I believe has been a national menace. The last thing I want to talk to you about, though, because this is something I'm wanting to address with you for a while. I also have a bone to pick with certain Republicans, certain Republicans who back what they call criminal justice reform. When I watched all these Republicans, including my favorite president, Donald J. Trump, back the First Step Act, it really did make the hair on the back of my neck stand up because these are still felon coddling policies. And I feel like a lot of times we lump in what could be real true criminal justice reform with felon coddling policies. And it bothers me because Republicans have kind of made this their mantle too. And I think it's getting lost in some kind of a muddy gray area, exactly what real reform is. And just like I said, felon coddling policies. What do Republicans do to walk that line and walk it well? Right. I do think that some treatment courts work. I'm a big advocate of veteran treatment courts. I think we owe it to veterans who have gone through hard times to try to get their lives back on track. I do believe in drug treatment courts. I think you have to make sure you do it like the way the state of Texas did it, where it's a very strict program. It's codified into law and you make sure it works. A lot of these policies are ridiculous. In New York, they're passing, like want to pass elder parole, which basically is if you're in jail for 15 years or you're 55 years of age, like you're going to get released. I mean, you're going to have serial killers getting uh, being up for parole uh, on those types of policies. I think that what we've seen is parole boards are out of control. Uh, the criminal just the criminal reform, pro-criminal, pro-criminal is what I would call them, reforms have gone too far. There were some policies that would have worked as a conservative, you want to make people productive citizens if they have a drug problem, they're a nonviolent person. But what they've done is they've taken this to the violent felons. And what you see with the left is once they get success on something, they keep pushing and they will keep pushing and pushing and pushing until people stop them. And the problem, as you pointed out, is many on our side want to be like, it's not just on this issue. It's a lot of issues. You see what illegal immigration, you see all these issues where Republicans are just afraid to take on these fights. And the worst part of it is we're always on the right side, but we just are not putting up the fight. 
You're exactly right, and I've said this for a long time. There are some people that want to be rehabilitated, and then there are some people that don't want to be rehabilitated, and letting them out of prison, letting them from behind bars is only going to wreak havoc on decent, law-abiding people who just want to work hard in their communities, like this bodega worker, bringing it back full circle. But, Michael, I wish you the best of luck. I do think that your race is going to set a national precedent, and we're in your corner, and I hope that we can make America safe again. Thank you very much for your time, and I appreciate you having me on. We'll talk to you soon. All right, still ahead, we're sticking with this miscarriage of justice theme. Joining me next is the wife of a Huntsville, Alabama police officer who's been sentenced to 25 years and in many people's view wrongfully for the death of a man he shot while on duty in 2018. The shocking story and wife Keeling Darby's emotional plea for true justice is next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Former Huntsville police officer William Darby was charged with the murder of Jeffrey Parker while on duty. He was convicted and now faces 25 years in prison. His former police chief, his friends, community members, and my next guest, his wife, insists he acted appropriately and was wrongfully convicted. So here to explain is William Darby's wife, Keelan Darby. All right, this is a crazy case, and the law enforcement community is very well aware of it, but I don't think the general public is. Mm -hmm. So you've got your husband, now faces 25 years. You're going to appeal it, but take me back to that day. What happened? What went wrong? And why is he now facing 25 years? So thank you for having me on your show. I really appreciate it because no one has heard about his case because we weren't allowed to talk about it. From the beginning, the judge issued a gag order. So now that that's over with, I'm trying to get the public to understand what all happened. So on April 3rd, 2018, Ben was working for Huntsville Police Department for, during his regular shift, uh, second shift, West Precinct, and a call came out over the radio of a man who had called dispatch and said that he was going to blow his brains out and the front door was open. So dispatch had sent two officers and the male officer had got on the radio and said, is there anyone else available to come help with this? And Ben was available, so he, he went. And nationwide, police officers are taught, you don't go into a house with a guy with a gun because you don't know what's going on inside that house. You, ha you can control more on the outside. You're not walking into a situation or an ambush, which could have been a very big possibility. So Ben went to the call. He ended up being third on scene. And when he got there expecting a perimeter be held, he grabbed his shotgun and went, made his way towards the house. But as he was making his way towards the house, he didn't see the other two officers. And already knowing that the guy had a gun, he thought, well, what if they got shot or something went wrong? So he runs up there, and to his surprise, he sees the female officer standing in the house with her gun pointed at the ground about 20 feet away from Mr. Parker, who had a gun to his head. So she's not protecting herself at all. And then the male officer is standing in the doorway, which everyone in law enforcement knows is the fatal funnel, and you're going you're gonna to die if you stay stuck in that. So Ben gets up there and tells her he's gonna sh he can shoot you, point your gun at him. And she keeps her gun pointed at the ground and is talking to him with her hand, trying to figure out what's going on. And Ben sees her 
fail to talk to him and get him to comply with the commands. Um, she's vapor locking. She's not able to express what she needs him to do clearly. And so Ben walks in and aims his shotgun at Mr. Parker and says, drop the gun. And Parker says, no, I'm not going to do it. And Ben said, I'm not going to tell you again, drop the gun. And after he had said that, uh, Parker had moved his gun forward and Ben had shot him. So to break all this down, there should have been a perimeter mm -hmm. set around the house. These officers shouldn't have gone in with somebody that they knew had a gun mm -hmm. who was basically threatening suicide, but who knows? There's been a lot of incidents, especially in the last several years mm -hmm. with this war on cops, where people call law enforcement, bait them into a situation, ambush them. So there was already a failure of protocol here. Right. He goes in, he sees a female officer not protecting herself with a man who has a gun. Right. Who very quickly and very easily could have turned that gun on her or the other officer. Mm -hmm. He tells the man, put your gun down. The man says he's not going to do it. He's not going to comply with the order from the officer. Mm -hmm. And then he goes and makes a motion. Right. Now, for those <clears throat> armchair quarterbacks, it's easy for them to say, oh, well, what, you, you shouldn't have shot him. He was just going to shoot himself. Until you're in that position, like we are from you to me, mm -hmm. with somebody with a loaded gun who then makes a move. So then that officer, this being your husband, in any case, any officer, has to make that split-second decision. Am I going to lose my life or am I going to take a life? It's not a position that anybody and any officer wants to be in, but it's a realistic part of the job. And now your husband is facing 25 years, and he should have just sat there and hoped to goodness that this guy wasn't going to shoot him, that this guy was just going to shoot himself, that this guy was going to be talked off the ledge. Right. I mean, listening to this and the way that you explain it, Makes so much sense now. But I got to tell you, Keelan, when I was looking up this case, because I wanted to know what happened here, I saw a lot of articles. And I saw a lot of people dissing the former police chief mm -hmm. for standing up for your husband. I saw a lot of articles dissing the Resiliency Project, which is a law enforcement advocacy group, yep. for, for standing up and defending your husband. But I didn't see anything explaining, other than Resiliency Project, why this was, in your view, a wrongful conviction and what had actually happened. I couldn't find it on Google. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find it in my research yep. until you told me today. Right. That's part of the problem here. But to me, for the life of me, I can't understand how this could go to court. And even somebody, let's say the judge doesn't like law enforcement. Let's say this is an activist judge. It doesn't matter. To me, it's so cut and dry that this officer had a reasonable fear for his own life. But it didn't shape up that way. Right. And so in court, the, the district attorney's office wanted everyone to look at it through the female officer's point of view. And in policing, you have objectable reasonableness. So you look through it, that officer. So if that officer uses force, you have to look at it through his lens, not anyone else in the room. Because if he felt in danger and they didn't, that's not his fault that they didn't recognize the threat. And it's not Ben's fault that she didn't recognize that Parker could have went like this and she's down at the ground like this, it's going to take her longer to get her gun up on him before he can turn it on her. And that's proven. It's action versus reaction. That's taught in every academy state in the state of Alabama and nationwide. And you're also in the law enforcement I community am. and field as well. I am. So you have a deeper understanding of this than most. Right. So I don't, I'm just not his wife who's mad that he's in prison. I'm also his, I'm also a police officer who, when I go to work tonight, I'm possibly going to face the same threat that he did. And I'm going to have to make that decision. Am I going to protect my life, or am I going to get shot? So way this all played out in court, mm -hmm. not only was there a gag order so that you couldn't talk about it, but there was also things that, that should have been presented 
that were not presented, Absolutely. like talking about the protocols and how they were broken from the start and talking about the training, as you mentioned, like a nationwide training of how mm. you react in a situation like this. How could it be that that wasn't allowed? So what wasn't allowed was um, case law. So Graham versus Connor, which is a bedrock case in police use of force that says that the officer does not have to wait for the beat of the weapon to be pointed at them if they feel like their life or a person in their vicinity, their life is in danger. Um, that backs Ben. Montute versus Carr backs Ben. Gris uh, Palm Beach Sheriff's Office versus Grzynski backs Ben. None of that was allowed to be heard to the jury. And it's illegal if the judge cannot legally, she can't allow p the jury to not hear things if it mm -hmm. has any shred of light to support the defendant. They have to hear everything that is defendable to the defendant. And she didn't allow that. She didn't allow uh, his training advisor, who was shot on duty in an action, action versus reaction situation where um, the guy had two guns pointed at the ground and Jason had his rifle aimed at the guy and the guy was able to flick his wrist and shoot Jason in the face with birdshot. Thank, thank God he survived that and he was able to go to the academy and then teach different academies, including Ben's and the ones after him, that you cannot wait for it to be pointed at you. If you feel like your life is threatened, in its totality of circumstances, you can't just, it's not one plus one is two. It's Parker was given seven commands to put the gun down. He had seven opportunities. Uh, when he called into dispatch, you can hear him on the recorded dispatch line. Dispatcher says, hold on, I'm gonna get you someone to talk to. And he says, no thanks, and hangs up. And then the dispatcher tries to call him back several times before the officers get there and he never answered. He didn't want help. He was a coward and he was asking for someone to get to kill him. And unfortunately, he, he played the card and Ben did what he needed to do. Ben went home that day. We didn't have a line of duty death or three line of duty deaths and an officer get killed. It's not Ben's fault that he can't follow directions. Right. And again, this is this position that not only Ben, your husband, was put in, but so many law enforcement officers are put in. And it used to be that officers could just do their job mm -hmm. and they could use their training to the best of their ability to make the right decision. Now, I'm not saying officers always make the right decision. There are several instances where they don't. But to use their training to the best of their ability to make the best decision. But now, because of the court of public opinion, now, mm -hmm. because of the anti-cop, anti-police rhetoric we have out there, these officers not only have to worry about arriving on scene and making sure that their fellow officers are safe, making sure that whoever is calling is safe, right. they also have to think to themselves, any action that I make to protect myself or others, my life might as well be over if I make the wrong decision or even if I make the right decision because the court of a public opinion is going to convict me no matter what, and either I'm going to be 25 years behind bars like your husband or the court of public opinion is going to shred me up, down, right, and left so badly and destroy my life so I'm not able to live a normal life anyway after this point. And that is a situation not only that your husband's in, but officers face every, every day. single day. And then the media and the Democrats wonder why we have a recruitment issue. Right. Who would sign up for that? Right. Who would sign up to be put in that position? Law enforcement is a calling, and it's a calling that so many people answer because they believe in what they're doing. They believe in the thin blue line. They believe in that division between good and evil, and they believe in standing for it. But the way that we're fostering this culture of lawlessness and this culture of anti-police demonization, people are going to be surprised when fewer people want to answer that call. Right, and it goes back to there was an incident in 2019 with Huntsville police officers who responded to a suicidal subject at an apartment complex. And the person who had called... Uh, she had a gun in her pocket, not in her hand, so she wasn't even holding it. It was in her front pocket, and the officers uh, went to her house. 
She came outside, so they, they did the right thing, called her out, and they saw the gun in her pocket, and they told her, put your hands up. And she reached, and they, they shot her, rightfully so. Those guys didn't get tried. Those guys didn't get charged. So what is it that the Madison County District Attorney Office and the District Attorney Robert Sard, what do they have against Ben Darby? The, Mr. Parker was more of a threat because he already had the gun in his hand. Right. Um, the, the 2019 incident, she had the gun on her hip, not in her hands. It's going to take her longer to grab it and present it than it is for Parker to go like that. And I'm glad those officers aren't going through, and I'm not asking for anyone to go through this hell that we've gone through for the last four years. But what, what is the inconsistency? Why do you have, what do you have against Ben Darby? And I can't imagine how frustrating it must be for you to make sure that the story gets out there mm -hmm. because when it's told, when it's told accurately and correctly, it makes all the sense in the world in the court of public opinion. And I believe the silent majority of people that support law enforcement officers will be on your side. But I can't imagine going through this and having a gag order on you, not being able to really get the facts of the case out because if you just look up this case, it seems like your husband was in the wrong. It does, and that's the way all the articles are written, mm -hmm. that your husband was in the wrong. And they call him convicted murderer, Ben Darby. Yep. Those are the articles I read, but I didn't read a single article that talked about your perspective, his perspective, or the actual facts of the case. Right, No, and no one's asked. Locally, um, you know, AL.com is the biggest uh, news agency in uh, North Alabama. They haven't asked us. They don't want to know our side. And, you know, starting when I started talking to Nick, Back in um, Mar end of March, resiliency April, project, yeah, so with the resiliency know. project, um, he helped me get that started and get our story out onto different platforms. And then the Pipe Hitter Foundation um, contacted me and have been getting me spots on radios and just different media because no one knows about this case because we weren't allowed to talk about it. Now that the gag order's up and we're up to appeal, you know, I hope that everyone in the state of Alabama knows about Ben who Ben Darby is, so that when this does go back to trial, there's not going to be any discrepancy as to what actually happened. There's no way that the judges are going to be able to not allow things in because the story is going to be out. There needs to be outrage on behalf of the officers as well. And we just see mm -hmm. uh, outrage on behalf of those that are killed by officers or injured by officers, but we don't see the same outrage when officers are wrongly accused, wrongly charged, wrongly convicted. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do everything we can to get the story out because it's not just Ben Darby, not just your husband. This is the, the thing that law enforcement officers are facing in this country. And if we don't set a precedent that the silent majority is going to get a little bit louder and speak up on behalf of those law enforcement families like yours that are being absolutely ravaged by this, we're not going to make changes. Right. So thank you. I know that this is going to the appeal process. I know that you're anxiously awaiting for it to go through the appeal process. Mm -hmm. But I can promise you this. I will make sure that I have this on the radar and I will pound it on the radar as much as I can with every ounce of my platform because this is absolutely wrong what's happening and the good, decent people of this country have your back. We and you need to know that. We appreciate that, Tommy. Thank you. Well, God bless you and we're going to follow this and God bless your husband. And I know that he wrote me a letter, which I really appreciate. So thank you so much. And like I said, we're going to keep sounding this from the rooftops. Thank you. All right, up next, a high school football coach was wrongfully fired by his school district for praying alone in the 50-yard line after games. He took his case to the Supreme Court, and he won. Coach Kennedy himself joins me next. Well, my next guest was fired by his school district for praying at the 50-yard line after games. He didn't compel the team to take part, and his personal moment of prayer didn't signal the school's endorsement of Christianity or any religion for that matter. And the Supreme Court agreed, ruling 6-3, his post-game praying was private speech and did not breach the separation of church and state. 
This was a win for Coach Kennedy and an even bigger win for religious freedom, liberty, and the First Amendment. Joining me now is victorious Coach Joe Kennedy and his senior counsel, Jeremy Dyes. Great to have both of you gentlemen with me, and I've been following this case, and I'm, I'm very, very happy for the way that it turned out. So congratulations to you both. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. So Coach Kennedy, I want to go to you first, and I want to ask you, you know, when this all went down, what part of you wanted to take this and take this to a fight instead of just laying down and allowing this to happen and saying, you know, I'll walk away with my tail between my legs, the school district can win. What made you want to come roaring back? Yeah, not to lie that I did have moments that I felt, man, maybe I shouldn't even take up this fight because, you know, only thing I wanted to do was just coach football and thank God. So it was just, you know, I had that inner struggle, but just like when I told all my football players on Friday nights, you know, I want them to give me everything. I know it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful and uncomfortable. So, but they got to push through it. Now, all of a sudden I was in that same situation and I would have been the world's biggest hypocrite if I didn't go along with this and, and keep fighting. So yeah, leadership by example, it, sometimes it costs a lot and it costs me everything, but in the end, boom, here we are. And uh, yeah, it's been a tough fight. It's been a tough fight, but you are the victor in that fight. I want to ask you to going back to this incident when, when it originally happened, it started out with you praying alone and then you had some of your team members joining you, not because you made them, not because you forced them, but because they were inspired by you. What about that? And maybe I can ask your legal counsel as well, if you're not able to tell me what about that is so triggering to a school district? You know, oh, God forbid that students want to learn about faith and God and be compelled to learn about the gospel and all things wonderful and great. God forbid they want to join you. I think that was, to me, the most interesting part of this whole thing. Yeah, well, for my side of it, I, it was it was a complete shock. You know, I, I spent 20 years in the military, you know, supporting and defending the Constitution. Now, all of a sudden, it doesn't apply to me. And that rubbed me the wrong way. And yeah, just like you said, a couple of the kids, they came up and they were like, Coach, what are you doing out there? And I said, I was just giving thanks for what you guys did. And they said, can we join? And I said, well, it's a free country. You can do whatever you want. And I mean, that was the extent of it. And then they started inviting the other teams. So that was just really cool. It was a good sign of sportsmanship afterwards. So I never looked at it as a right and a wrong thing. It was a, a someone being thankful and the team being thankful and wanting to be part of it. So I never saw a problem with it. But the school lawyers kind of messed that all up. And I know Jeremy's just chomping at the bit to say something there. <laughs> Jeremy, oh, I'd yeah, love to I hear mean, <laughs> yeah, look, it's it's we've lived under five generations of of the, the the government telling us that you can't have religion creep out in public, and if it does, then school districts have been really excited to pull out a bottle of Lysol they call the the establishment clause and spray down every single surface lest religion infect the the, the, the crowd, uh, and so they've been punishing basically any kind of display of religion on campus, no matter how incidental it might be. Well, the Supreme Court said with this decision in Coach Kennedy's case is, hey, you need to remember there's this other clause in the First Amendment that says that you have to protect people's free exercise of religion as well. And when we do that, Justice Gorsuch says, we actually contribute to the diversity of our society that, that, that kind of bolsters our republic here. And, and school districts in particular are supposed to be teaching their kids how to live in this pluralistic, tolerant, diverse society that we live in. And if they can't teach that lesson, then what are we teaching them at schools these days? Well, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I talked about this when I discussed your case at length because I was very fired up about it. 
Listen, we've been living in the last at least five years where schools have been a hotbed of political activism, from BLM to critical race theory to everything that you can imagine has taken place at schools. And it's not only been excused, but in some cases celebrated by school districts, by administrators. People are welcome to take a knee for the national anthem, to spray Black Lives Matter everywhere. But then when it comes to you and you wanting to exercise your free speech, Coach Kennedy, then all of a sudden they're in shock and awe and clutching their pearls. Doesn't make sense to me. Did you see any of that hypocrisy when this case was going to the Supreme Court as well? Um, well, only thing that I saw, we did have a, um, a school district across the water, Garfield High School. i got to give them a shout out. They're just awesome school. Well, they took a, a knee in, in protest at, at, during the national anthem. And, you know, whatever anybody's personal feelings about it, their coaches were allowed to do that. And the great thing about it is that they, you know, the same right that protects them to do that should apply to me also. So that's, you know, that's the way I look at everything as far as, you know, the freedom of speech and, and those kind of things. So, you know, I always have internal battles with, with other people's things, but I, I still respect everybody else's, um, you know, rights. I That's what I spent 20 years defending was that, you know, no matter how mad something makes me, you know, if, if it's the right, then, you know, you got to accept it across the board for everybody. Right, and I've always been very vocal about that as well. We have the right to do it. Other people have the right to criticize it, but it's just really the media's treatment of it that I think is so frustrating for so many. But Jeremy, I want to ask you this too. Do you think that this case would have shaped up the same way and the victory would have shaped up the way that it did if we didn't have the majority that we have in the Supreme Court? Uh, it's hard to say, but I, I'm so thankful that we had the justices see clearly what the facts of this case were and what the law needs to be in regards to Coach Kennedy. And they and look, a 6-3 decision like this doesn't come easily. And so for the justices to look through the law, look through the facts and say, you know what, we need to make a simple correction here because what would happen if we allow the Ninth Circuit's decision to stand? What would happen is that teachers would have to shed their religion before they walk through the schoolhouse gates. They'd have to leave their hijab in the car. They'd have to leave their yarmulke at the gate. They would have to uh, stop praying in the, the lunchroom if students could actually see them engaged in that simple act of silent prayer. Uh, they would have to stop saying, God bless you, to students who sneezed in the hallway, because if they did any of those things under the Ninth Circuit's decision in this case, they could stand to be fired. But that's ridiculous under the First Amendment, of course. And the Supreme Court said basically as much when they, they ruled in Coach Kennedy's case that we're supposed to respect the free exercise of religion in this country, not punish it. Uh, and so for the state of Washington through its school district to come down on the head of a little citizen like Joe Kennedy and punish him for engaging in his free exercise rights, well, that violated his First Amendment free exercise rights and then punished him for talking about it. That violates his free speech rights and then fire him because he said something religious. Well, that's his that's his civil rights that have been violated as well. So three strikes. They're out. Coach Kennedy wins. He did nothing wrong. The school district did everything incorrect. Infringement after infringement after infringement. But Coach Kennedy, I want to ask you, what's next for you? Now that you've won this battle, and it's such a great battle for you to win, not only for you, but for what it means for the country. But what do you do after that? Well, the very short term is giving thanks, uh, you know, to God, giving thanks to everybody who stood beside me, my family who has been put through, you know, such a, a long, drawn-out battle. And just thanks everybody who's reported on it. And it's people like you that actually get that story out there and, and made everybody aware of it. And those people, millions of Americans, have been just alongside me this whole entire time. So in the short term, I'm just thanking everybody I can for standing up with me. I never would have been able to do it myself. Um, long term, I'm just still waiting for the, the school district to give me a call and say, hey, you know, 
we're sorry, we made a mistake, and here's what we're going to do to make it right. And hopefully that is be back on the football field and just giving me my um, First Amendment right to just walk down there and after the game and take a quick knee and thank God for it. Well, hey, listen, if you ever want to come to a state that would appreciate that kind of action, you can come to the great state of Tennessee because I promise you, you wouldn't have any issues in this state. We still love God and we still believe in all the things that you stand for. But thank you both for being here. Again, congratulations to you both. And I'm excited to see what you do next. Yeah, go balls. <laughs> there we go. So I love it. Thank you, guys. All right, still ahead, more nuggets of filth and poor taste from the laptop from hell and Hunter Biden's mouth from the gutter. My final thoughts are next. That laptop from hell is delivering more filthy content courtesy of the smartest man Joe Biden knows, his son Hunter. This time, the subject of his rage text is none other than First Lady Jill Biden. And wait till you hear this. It's time for final thoughts. Yes, folks, Hunter Biden's gutter mouth and laptop from hell is blessing or more accurately cursing us with more content. These text messages were uncovered on an iPhone that was backed up on that laptop from hell. Yes, the same laptop the New York Post reported on before the 2020 election. The same laptop big tech and the mainstream media denied belonged to Hunter before censoring the story altogether and claiming it was just Russian disinformation. Yeah, that laptop. But more on that later. Back to these text messages. In a string of texts to his deceased brother's widow slash his secret lover, Haley Biden, Hunter called his stepmom, Jill, an entitled see you next Tuesday. But that's not all. In texts to his uncle, Joe Biden's brother, Hunter reportedly called Jill a vindictive moron and an effing moron. Oh, but there's still more. He also claimed in one text he is smarter than Jill. Allow me to read this doozy aloud. And you do know the drunkest I've ever been is still smarter than you could ever even comprehend. And you're a blank grammar teacher that wouldn't survive one class in an Ivy graduate program. So go F yourself, Jill. Let's all agree I don't like you any more than you like me. Wow, Hunter, tell us how you really feel. My God. Can y'all imagine if these messages belong to Don Jr.? If Don Jr. talked about Melania the way Hunter Biden talked about Jill? The rabid feminists would lose their minds, but once again, Hunter gets a pass. Add that to his book full of passes, including, but not limited to, being kicked out of the U.S. Navy Reserves after testing positive for cocaine on day one, a long record of addiction that includes drugs, alcohol, and prostitutes, dating his deceased brother's widow, Classy, cheating on his wife countless times, plus fathering a child with a stripper, which he denied until a positive DNA test showed otherwise. But I get it, those are all personal struggles. And if Hunter just had addiction issues and questionable life choices, whatever. But that crap is just the tip of the iceberg. Then there's all of this. From 2013 to 2018, Hunter brought in 11 million bucks as an attorney and board member with Ukrainian energy firm accused of bribery and for his work for a Chinese businessman now accused of fraud. Sounds about right. Raking in tens of thousands of dollars a month to sit on a board for a corrupt company involved in an industry he had no experience in while his papa was in charge of Ukraine policy. Again, sounds about right. And let's not forget about a year ago when Hunter took up professional painting and artistry to flip a buck with that too. Do all crack addicts make this kind of dough or is it just the ones related to the big guy? 
Yeah, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, Joe maintains he has no knowledge or involvement in Hunter's shady foreign dealings. But that's a bald-faced lie. We now have a leaked voicemail from Joe to Hunter that details that lie. But here's the always eloquent press secretary giving us those word salad Kamala Harris vibes. Well, first I'll say that uh, what the president said stands. So if, he, if that's what the president said, that, he, that is what stands. We're not from this podium. I am not going to talk about alleged materials from the laptop. Well, there you have it. They don't want to talk about it, so I guess we should all just pretend it doesn't exist, just like we pretend Biden is competent and mentally sound, and we should just all move on. And why is it only Fox News and Peter Ducey care to ask about it? Two privileged white guys raking in money on foreign business deals while one of those white guys sat and is now currently sitting in the White House. Gee, you'd think the woke media would be all over this white and White House privilege, but no, guess that liberal privilege just trumps all of it. There's going to be a day of reckoning for both Joe and Hunter and the Democrat Party and the members of the media covering for them, and that day is coming. And those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.